Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello. We are doing this rewriting biology series right now. And today I'm with Nupur Siddiqui, who's this amazing founder of Orchid Biosciences, a reproductive health company that uses IVF to help you have healthier babies. And Nur brings us through this journey with two big parts. The first is the history of reproductive technology, which has always been controversial. And like back in the day, birth control was obscene, you know, classic. And then she brings us to the modern day, which is really crazy, and what they're doing with single cell sequencing, which is that, you know, when a baby is formed, at day one, there's just one cell, but then by day five, there's 125 cells, it's doubling, doubling, doubling. And what they do is they take off five of those cells and then sequence them. And that is, you know, the sequence little embryo there. And that is really crazy technology that they've built. And it's very different than like 23andMe, which has, you know, we have trillions of cells. And so they can take you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of them. And so it's cool to hear how, you know, babies are born these days with IVF and how they're able to kind of um, check their healthiness. So that was really cool to kind of dive into that. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Heads Up does cut off right at the end. Uh, this in-person one that I'm trying out, but the computer kind of wigged out and so it kind of cut it off. But um, yeah, we got the full uh, bit in there, and I still hope you enjoy it and understand that, wow, IVF is coming in the coming decades, and uh, there's going to be a lot healthier babies, hopefully. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hello, listeners. My name is Reese Lenmark. I'm the founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. Today, I'm excited to chat with Noor Siddiqui. Noor is the founder and CEO of Orchid Biosciences, a reproductive technology company to help families have healthier babies. Noor, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. It's cool to be here in person. <laughs> We're in person. We're in a WeWork, you know, it's great. Yeah, um, yeah it's really fun. And I think uh, we're going to dive into kind of understanding, you know, reproductive technologies these days and what it means for society, but also for people, you know, generally. And before we dive into that, I just want to say it's funny because when we first met, I was just walking around San Francisco and we saw our friends and you are having, a, we're having like a, what felt to me like a woman slash girls dinner or whatever. Yeah. But I just kind of saddled in, sat down, started eating your food and you were chatting about, you know, single mother by choice and genetic testing and all these cool things. Yeah. And I was just listening and learning and was like, oh my God, you all know so much about this. So that was an exciting moment. And then when I was thinking about understanding genetic testing and the rewriting the biosphere, I was like, oh, I got hit at newer. Yeah. So uh, with that, before we get into ORCID itself, how do you think about, like, what is the through line that ties your work together? You were a TO fellow, excited by, like, education in Pakistan, and then you were a Stanford CS person, but now you do, like, biotech. What's, what's the deal? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that there's... Um... I, don't know, I think it's usually really neat, like, after you've done something to be able to, like, tie up, oh, this is, like, the, the, the thing that ties together my work. But um, I don't know. I think I just, like, work on stuff that I think is as the coolest thing I can be doing at the time. So I think uh, I've been really fortunate that, like, as I've gotten older and as I've met more people, I've been able to, I think, do, like, cooler and cooler stuff over time. Sort of as you get more skills, as you meet more people, as you, like, sort of realize, like, what are, like, more exciting opportunities. So... Um, yeah, I don't think there's like necessarily a unifying theme besides something. I, I think I, what I am trying to do is sort of like try to be more sincere and genuine over time and mm -hmm. sort of like maybe when I was younger, I might've just been kind of like, had a really small, uh, 
area of things I was exposed to, right? I grew up in DC and like, you kind of see like a lot of people in law, a lot of people in politics. And I think, um, you know, when you come out to the Bay Area, you see a lot of people doing startups. So it's sort of like you get kind of into that mode. And I think that, um, yeah, hopefully I'm just like trying to be like more sincere or like genuine to what my real interests are over time. That's my goal. <laughs> how, does that, how does that show up? The like being more sincere, like how do you learn about your interests and how do you become more sincere and authentic to them? I think it's just like a process of reflecting and like finding out what feels insincere, right? Like it's sort of like, um, I think people often say it's like a skill to be able to, uh, go from like failure to failure with like the same amount of enthusiasm or like mm -hmm. to pitch the same idea or like the same thing you're working on a thousand times to a thousand different people hear the same objections and still be able to, uh, respond with, uh, patience. And I think that, um, that's sort of, I think in some ways, a measure of sincerity, like you sort of burn out after a shorter amount of time. And maybe that thing is something you're, uh, less sincere or less persistent or, or care about, uh, less because you sort of, at some, at some point you stop being able to perform, uh, or basically be performative or like fake it. Mm -hmm. And then I think that if it really lasts a long time, it's like, okay, this is internally motivated because I really care about this thing. It's not because, um, you know, someone else that I'm trying to impress, like tries, cares about this thing. Yeah, that makes sense. It's uh, and I love that was when I was in a sad moment during COVID and trying to like make myself motivated. I mm -hmm. would listen to these like pump up songs in the morning um, and walk around the block twice. And one of them was this great, you know, failure is, or no, what is it? Success is failure and failure again without losing enthusiasm. Yeah. Or just like that idea where you're like, you're excited by something and you just keep on doing it. And, um, yeah. And then if, and then if, and if every song you that's dumb, but you still want to do it, you're probably into that thing. You yeah. Know? Yeah, um, exactly. That's funny. And so, and then like Orchid, what made you feel like hype about Orchid, you know? Yeah. So basically I've been hyped about Orchid for probably more than 10 years. Wow. So, so actually I applied to the Teal Fellowship with like a very, I, I would say pretty similar idea, like, like similar space as Orchid, but I was basically like, well, I'm 17. I don't think anyone's going to trust me to like have their, help them have their babies. Like this is like, <laughs> this is like not, a, this not a good first company. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think it was like a it was like a long process. I think for me to sort of like aggregate uh, enough experience, like both on the like research side and like sort of aggregate the the experts that we needed. So um, REIs or reproductive endocrinologists, like the specialists who prescribe fertility medications, uh, laboratory directors. Like there's like a, a whole like spectrum of people. Like yeah. I had to kind of like uh, um, I don't know, just like meet and work with at Stanford to sort of feel like okay. Like, it's not just, like, me and this, like, rogue idea. It's sort of, like, a large set of not just, um, you know, like, bioinformatics scientists, but all the other, like, clinicians and support staff that you need to sort of, you know, help someone have a baby. So I think, like, for me, the reason why um, I'm so hyped about it is because I've been hyped about it for, like, 10 years. Like, I'm, like, super excited about embryos. And, like, I think everyone I've ever met at Stanford, when they when they saw that I started Orca, they were like, yes, you've been talking about this for so long. <laughs> so, um yeah, that's cool. Is it? And, and let me let me ask one other question there, which is: you've been excited about it for ten years, but then do you remember either seventeen-year-old self or fifteen-year-old self or thirteen-year-old self that had that epiphany where you're like, "Yo, I really want to make baby making better" or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of things. I think when I was um, when I was pretty young, probably like yeah, more than 10 years ago, like kind of around the time you have like sex ed mm -hmm. or stuff. Yeah. There was um, basically, I, I basically just realized that maybe I had a different opinion of sort of 
like some people were like, oh yeah, like pregnancy is awesome and I'm excited to do it. And I sort of like, no, it's there's like really a lot of risks. <laughs> seems kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> it seems, it seems pretty scary. A lot yeah. of things, a lot of things that could go wrong. So I yeah. think that was like maybe the first time I started being interested in the idea of like reproductive technology. And then, um, you know, my mom got diagnosed with this disease called retinal pigmentosa in her early thirties. So she basically started progressively going blind. So she sort of mm-hmm. lived her whole life as a sighted person, mm-hmm. but then had to grapple with this, like such a like, pivotal part of her identity being taken away from her. And I think that, um, that was also like a really like big moment for me because it was sort of like the genetic lottery really gets thrown in your face, right? Mm-hmm. Cause it's sort of like when it's, yeah, it's your parent. It's like someone that you love and you're so close to, and you see them, um, just get the short end of the stick and sort of feel like, well, that's really unfair. Like it didn't happen to happen to her siblings. It didn't happen to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there was a, some period of time where we were worried it wouldn't happen to, <laughs> to, to us, but you know, we were able to uh, exclude that later. And then um, I think as I got older, wondering, oh, like what happened to, to my kids? And it's sort of like, that's just like a superpower that I think is sort of like the most fundamental desire people have, which is like, how can my children suffer less than mm-hmm. I did? Right? Like that's what motivated my parents to come to America is mm-hmm. like they wanted us to have more opportunity. And it's sort of like everyone's desire is, you know, I want my kid to be better off than me. And what more basic way than like, hey, I suffer from this disease or I was a caregiver for someone with this disease. And, you know, can I, you know, make it uh, statistically less likely for for my child to have have that condition? And it's sort of like there's nothing that's like more motivating or exciting for me to work on because it's like every single product is not really a product right it's a it's a human on the other side of it it's like Mm -hmm. someone who gets to live a life with maybe you know Mm -hmm. whatever it is like five more years of healthy life or totally avoid a disease or whatever it is it's sort of like super significant uh and it's really there's like no there's no way that i can like i'm really good at arguing with myself and there's no (laughs) way for me to like argue myself into like this is not like a super important thing to work on regardless of sort of all of the uh yeah, like challenges and setbacks that, that come with, you know, any company, but there's obviously um, quite a bit when you're working in the reproductive tech space, because it's sort of like this, uh, it's like this magnet for controversy. Actually. Yeah. So every single technology in yeah. reproductive tech has been met with uh, fierce criticism, right? Mm-hmm. So when IVF was introduced mm-hmm. 40 years ago, it was sort of like, these are test tube babies, mm-hmm. like the entire medical community was outraged, the you know religious communities were outraged. And now, 40 years later, it's, um, I mean, I don't know in your group of friends, but it's mm-hmm. really in, in, incredibly common, right? Like every, um, mm-hmm. you know, top tech company has a fertility benefit. Yeah. You know, women are, are freezing their eggs like earlier and earlier in life. And there's 8 million people on the planet who wouldn't exist if mm-hmm. IVF didn't become mainstream, right? Like the doctor that invented uh, IVF was given the Nobel Prize like 20 years later. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like met with fierce criticism and then just like pretty quickly for um, medicine at least became, you know, standard of care celebrated. And, um, you know, I, I don't think there's something that people tend to value more than their family and their children. So sort of like for eight like million people, it's like they wouldn't exist if, you know, this person didn't push through the controversy. Yeah. And um, yeah, IVF isn't unique, right? It's the same for, um, for birth control, right? Mm-hmm. So birth control in the U.S. was originally, there was originally obscenity laws and birth control was considered obscene. <laughs> the first birth control clinic was, was, was shut down the, by the police, right? <laughs> so it's sort of like, you know, we talk about um, sort of like the Overton window and the Overton window yeah. did not include the ability for a woman to choose when and if she wanted to have yeah. a child. 
um, until, you know, about a hundred years ago. And it's like, it's insane that that was, I mean, I mean, it wasn't insane that it was like, feels insane now. It feels insane now to think that like a woman would be able to choose like when she had a child, right? Sort of like, yeah, it's very fundamental to, um, you know, how we do things. How we do things. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously of the opinion that that's how we're going to see, um, you know, having kids in the future sort of like if we can reduce their chance of having all sorts of, uh, debilitating diseases, then why why wouldn't we, why, why roll the dice on a decision that's, uh, so important and fundamental, not to say obviously that, uh, you know, I have any moral judgment against people who don't do the testing, but, but, um, but, but, option for folks. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, obviously I'm, I'm pro uh, (laughs) for people who want to have the information. Like, yeah, um, I'm in the business of providing it to you. Exactly. exactly. You're <laughs> yeah. financially incentivized. No, um, yeah, yeah. It's, um, so, A, let me just reflect on some of that stuff. It's, uh, A, it's cool. Just talking about your general trajectory and thinking about how we all grow up in these, whatever our little bubbles may be. And then you start to, like, see the world more and more. You're like, oh, my God, you're in D.C., but then you're out here in the tech world. And you could just to kind of yeah. – you're increasing your network. You're increasing your um, skills. You're increasing your ambition and being around. You're like, I can do this this is cool. Like I can like, so I think that's just like a general piece of advice for young folks or just like, look, just continue to like see other more ambitious things happening. And then you'll be like, I can do that too. Um, so I love that. I think what you talked about with the, the lottery thing makes sense where a lot of people, you know, I, I didn't connect it to the like moving to, you know, America or like, you know, getting education for a better job. It's like genetic testing or, you know, reproductive technologies will be a similar thing. It's like, yeah, you want your kid if you have some kind of issue, I'm bald or, you know, it's like, yo, you want your kid to have that, you know, or to not have that rather. Um, it also makes me think of, you know, the, the personal story there and how, you know, for me, my mom died of Alzheimer's about two years ago, roughly. And she had it from the age of like 55 through 65, which is just, it's young. Yeah, really young. It's young. And yeah. it's just sad. And so you do, when these things start to hit yourself, you're like, oh, like I care more about Alzheimer's now. I probably in the, in the top 1% of caring about Alzheimer's yeah. only because it affected me, you know? And so it's like trying to find yeah. those ways to... Yeah, you know. no, personal experience is huge. So I actually have um, APOE E3, E4. So I'm like mm-hmm. four times as like three to four times as likely to get Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I care about Alzheimer's too. Yeah. Not probably as much as you because I haven't had the personal experience, but... Um, that's cool yeah. though. I mean, that's is that the, the gene? Because I remember looking into gene stuff and is that the one that leads... That one just makes more likely versus there's stuff that is like hypergenetic Alzheimer's or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that's a different thing. Yeah, is that's, that right? that's uh, I think, I don't remember the exact uh, mutation, but yes, that causes Alzheimer's. There's a, there's a single gene mutation that calls, causes Alzheimer's in your 30s. Yeah. So it's super early. So actually, funny segue is, so the first case of IVF, uh, avoiding an adult onset disease was Alzheimer's. And mm-hmm. it was in, I think, 1995. Wow. And it was at early onset uh, Alzheimer's for, yeah, basically a mother who had that condition didn't want her uh, child to have it. So, wow. so yeah, basically, so, so, okay, so sorry. One thing I'm super excited about yeah, that people does. do not talk about enough is that IVF has been curing the diseases that gene therapy will only one day treat mm-hmm. for 20, you know, 20 to $30,000 a case. So mm-hmm. gene therapies cost millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And then what they're doing is they're basically taking a broken gene and uh, replacing it with a functional copy. Mm-hmm. But if you do IVF, you don't have to deal with any of the side effects. You don't have to pay millions of dollars for a treatment. And, uh, you know, it's pretty much 100% success rate because you're just identifying the embryo that doesn't have, you know, for example, that early onset Alzheimer's mutation. Um, but yeah, anyway, so, so it's what, like a good deal, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great deal. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just think it's, it's super underhyped. It's sort of like people are spending, you know, 
billions of dollars trying to get these gene therapies to market, which is great. I obviously think we should have, you know, cures for the people who have those diseases, but from like a cost benefit benefit perspective and like starting a new family perspective, it's sort of like you can reduce risk and a lot of suffering uh, for a lot cheaper with IVF. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess with the, with the Alzheimer's stuff, um, I think it's really interesting because people really, um, people have really varied responses, right? So mm-hmm. some people have contacted us and said they really want to, um, you know, they, they have the same experience as you and they want to identify the embryo that has the lowest risk for Alzheimer's. And other people are like, well, why would you even include this on the report? Mm -hmm. This is something that's not going to affect the child for, you know, 50 Mm -hmm. or 60 years. So it's super interesting. Like people have just wildly different perspectives on what is, what is or isn't worth testing. And I think that um, the fact that there's so much diversity means that um, it's a very personal decision. Like Mm -hmm. it's not, yeah, it's not for any one person to decide because for some person, for some, for someone, Alzheimer's is super important. And for other people, Alzheimer's is irrelevant. And you can't yeah. convince either party <laughs> which is correct. So do I, when I get the little, like, um, screening back, would I, could I ask for Alzheimer's to be taken away or whatever? Yeah. Okay. okay yeah. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we do, we do all, any type of blinding that you want. So yeah. you can, yeah, you can say, I don't want to see anything but this or the opposite. <laughs> I could have you do the test and then say, send me a blank report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Blind everything. I just wanted to donate and give you money. Donate, donate to science. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. For science. Yeah. It, um, and let's kind of dive into how Orchid actually works. And before doing that, I do want to say one thing, which is just a thing that you said there, which is I love the idea of, you know, your product is kind of a person in in a sense that like yeah, you're giving someone five more years of healthy life or you're like helping them not have some kind of disease. And that's interesting because like most products, you know, if you're making Twitter or whatever, like it's like that it's kind of it's helping people under connect with other. It's very different, though, than just like your product is really it's, yeah, I guess this is for a lot of biotech or especially a lot of like health sciences stuff. It's just like, you're really helping the person itself be healthier. And like, it's, I don't know, that's kind of an interesting, like the, the product being the person is, is, uh, exciting, but also, yeah, there's the, that also leads into obviously the, like maybe worries around it where if like, oh, if your product is closer to a person, then that kind of, um, that's like worrying for folks or whatever, like, Oh, you're helping people change the babies or whatever. Um, so let's get, let's get into to orchids. So I think, so I, as far as I understand, there are two kind of, um, you have your couple report and you have your embryo report, mm-hmm. the couple report, let's say me and my new girlfriend were hanging out. We're like, great, let's, let's check out to see if I have this APO three, four gene or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can get ourselves tested, mm-hmm. um, while the embryo is where you get the embryo tested Yeah, is the, and then for the couple report, how do you, you do the whole, you know, genomic sequencing. I'm just curious, like, what do you use to do that? Like what machine? And then also, um, how do you do the actual, like check on the report? Are you doing some kind of like, you're doing polygenic stuff. So you're looking at a bunch of genes and then do you do some AI or like what's going on there? Yeah. 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 yeah so basically the, the couple report helps answer the question for uh, two partners, you know, is our child going to be at normal or elevated risk for 10 common conditions? So mm-hmm. things like heart disease, breast cancer, um, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, diabetes, IBD, there's you know, quite a few diseases on there. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, yeah, a lot of people go into their pregnancy with a lot of anxiety because they're mm-hmm. like, well, I have this condition or my partner has this condition or 
uh, I'm not worried about any particular condition, but I just really want my kid to be healthy because it's like, you know, this really important thing. I'm having a kid. And I, you know, I do this, uh, you know, comical amount of research, like on, on Yelp to choose like where I'm going to go to lunch. But like when it comes to like my pregnancy, I just want to know nothing or something. So, so, so a lot of people just have a, a lot of information that they wish that they could have about such an important decision. So that's what we try to do. So we try to make them as informed as possible about this most consequential choice they're going to make, which is um, to have a child. Yeah. So basically the, what the report will tell you is that, hey, either um, all green, you're a normal risk for everything, like any child that you would have would be in the normal range of genetic risk, mm-hmm. or you're at elevated risk for one or multiple diseases, yeah. in which case that's not a guarantee that your child would get the disease, but it's it means you're at elevated genetic risk. So what that means is sort of it's uh, sort of equivalent, you could think, to um, smoking, where if you mm-hmm. smoke, it's not a guarantee that you're going to get lung cancer, but it increases your, your risk. Or if you're super overweight, it's not a guarantee that you're going to get um, you know, high hypertension or high blood pressure, mm-hmm. but it obviously increases the chances. So similarly, you can think of your genetics the, the same way. Um, so that's the point of the couple report and mechanically how it works is you just spit in a tube mm-hmm. and then we, uh, we sequence the entire genome of both partners. And if you ask which machine, yeah, Illumina has a monopoly. Illumina. Okay, great. They, have, on- they still have, so you're not <laughs> using, you're not using any of the long read, um, ones from like, um, what's the name of the like long reads? An Oxford nanopore. Or there's that one other one that I forget the name yeah, right now yeah, that you yeah. might know. Um, so you use Illumina. Yeah, we, the, yeah we use Illumina. Yeah, we're, not, yeah. we're not doing anything, anything crazy yeah. on the, the sequencing side. So yeah, we do sequence your entire genome so basically other companies what they'll do is they'll sequence small fragments of usually the female partner's genome and mm-hmm. then they're doing something called carrier screening so mm-hmm. they're looking to see does the female partner carry uh, one of these single gene recessive mm. mutations. And then only if she carries something, then they do the work of sequencing the male partner to say, okay, okay does he carry the same thing? Okay. So that happens super rarely because... Two recessives. Oh, no. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah exactly. So that, that happens super rarely. So um, basically, it's not necessarily the most comprehensive type of genetic treating that you could you could get mm-hmm. so then i think you also asked like what does how does it actually work how does it work you're yeah, looking at all these random genes and you yeah. know if you gave me that data i'd be like seems good you know <laughs> but yeah, obviously yeah. so do you give it to, do, hey, how does that work deep down in the yeah or like is there is it some kind of deep learning thing or what's going on yeah yeah so basically what we do is we first thing we do is we model recombination so okay. um basically what creates all this cool like diversity between siblings is is this thing called recombination so your chromosomes literally like overlap and like different pieces mm-hmm. of them uh, are inherited by different siblings. So there's like empirical data, there's like papers that just show, hey, like in people, this is like the uh, like the, the recombination rate, and this is like how you can model how two people's uh, genomes cool. are going to recombine in a child. So we do that, and then once we have all of these simulated simulated children, so yeah. literally just like genetically, here's all the different possibilities yeah. between you and your your partner. Like tens um, of thousands or millions or how you do it like... Well, yeah, you can actually model it pretty reasonably with just like a thousand or ten thousand. Okay, cool. Yeah, so we don't need to show like your millions of kids. Yeah. And then um, on each of those genomes, you're we're running the risk score. So basically the risk score for heart disease uh, includes a, a few million variants. And the way that you find those few million variants is from really large scale studies. Mm-hmm. So basically there's um, hundreds of thousands of individuals that have been sequenced and then you have their medical records. So basically you have labels. So just like with... Um, computer vision where you have like, okay, car, like cat, cat, things yeah. like it's pretty much the same, right? <laughs> so instead of it being images you're working with, you're working with genomes and you're working with, okay, does this person like heart disease or not? So you basically have cases, people with heart disease and then controls, people don't have heart it. disease. And then you're t- saying which uh, variants have a statistical association with heart disease and mm-hmm. we should include them in our model. Cool. Um, so yeah, so basically you run these risk scores on, you basically for all of the diseases on each simulated child yeah. and then you have a report that 
gets generated at the end that says, hey, here are all the, the possibilities. Great. That that was yeah. very clear and helpful. Yeah, you have the recombinations, yeah. you make the, all the simulated children, all the ghost children, and then um, you <laughs> check for them and say, okay, out of all these ghost children, which ones have um, these risks uh, based off of doing these previous uh, studies? And yeah. so the question, my, the question I have is like, okay, so you look at all these people with heart disease and you're seeing, are you doing like... Yeah, just like the labels with other kind of artificial intelligence, are you like are you using like a trance? Like, do, what are like? Do you know what the actual? Um, are you just are you actually using like a transformer architecture? Are you using like um, just like statistics or like what kind of associations are you doing there? Do yeah, it's you? actually way simpler than uh, like CNNs or anything like that. Yeah. It's actually just linear regression. So, okay. so literally, you're just you, you take something called a Manhattan plot. So mm -hmm. you're just you're basically looking for what, you know where are the peaks, which are the variants that are passing this p-value threshold. Cool. Um, so you do like multiple hypothesis correction because you have three billion bases. So you, you have to correct the fact that you're doing all these you know so many uh, basically so many potential hypotheses that you have to uh, make sure that you're not just including something that mm -hmm. was just er erroneously sort of by chance yeah. uh, would have been included. Um, so yeah, then what you, what you get out of that is you get an odds ratio or an effect size for each uh, variant. And then you're yeah. just doing, it's a weighted linear model. So you just, they say, what is the dosage of this specific variant? Do you have, you know, one copy or two copies? And then what is the effect size for each? And then you just sum them all up. So okay. it's actually, it's weird. It's, I, I would actually say it's kind of the opposite of machine learning where it's, where it sounds simple, but it's actually very hard in practice because, <laughs> because basically the thing is that some of the things that are confusing is that the, um, allele frequencies and the, uh, something called linkage disequilibrium. So the way that, um, basically, uh, DNA segregates changes between populations. So mm -hmm. if you want to get these risk scores to work really well, you have to have a really good understanding of the sequencing technology that you're mm -hmm. using and you have to get, have a good understanding of how they're going to work. Um, yeah, basically between populations and also with just the disease labels, like similar to, you know, just conventional machine learning, right? How um, descriptive do you want to be about a disease label, right? Mm. So for example, um, for type one diabetes, for example, do you want to only include people who are, you know, under 25 who are mm -hmm. on insulin, or do you want to just include people who are labeled as having type one diabetes? That could maybe include some people who don't necessarily have it. Maybe they've been misdiagnosed and it's actually type two yeah. because they're not actually on insulin or, you know, there's basically, you can, you can be more or less stringent in you know, how you even define someone with a specific uh, disease. So yeah. there's, there's lots of, I guess, um, complication. There, there, there's lots of complications, yeah. but, the, but the overall idea, overall idea is actually like very simple, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, which variants do people with the disease have more often than people mm -hmm. without? And yeah. then, can you do a bunch of math to figure out to isolate which one which variants they are? And then once you've isolated those those the vari the variants that are um, that are correlated with the disease, yeah. can you figure out the exact effect size that you should assign to each of those uh, variants so that you can you just sort of have the most uh, you know the best risk stratification yeah. for a specific disease? Cool. No, that's 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 um it's cool to hear some of just the back end for how these things. And for me personally, yeah. I didn't even know I only recently started learning about biotechy stuff. And so like just yeah. hearing the word Illumina is helpful for me. I'm like, I know them, you know, like this. Yeah. So it's like, it's cool to hear the, yeah. the deep down stuff too. Yeah. And so talking about maybe the, and then you yeah, think about the like embryo screening side. Um, yeah. It sounds like, yeah, tell me how is that different if at all than the kind of couple screening? Yeah. 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 So the embryo screening is, is pretty similar. I'd say the only difference is that it's a lot harder to get, um, a genome sequence off of an embryo than off hmm. of a blood or saliva sample. Hmm. So blood or saliva has 
hundreds of thousands of times the amount of DNA uh, than you have in five cells. Oh, there's only, <laughs> oh, cause it's only five cells. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's like how big the embryo is. Well, that's how big the, um, the sample, sample, sample. You don't want to, you don't want to like don't chop wanna, off half the embryo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to baby at the end of yeah. But yeah, so the, the mechanics of how IVF works is that, um, the female partner is on, uh, stimulation. So injections for about two weeks to mm-hmm. stimulate her ovaries to, uh, get her follicles to mature, so basically to yeah. hatch hatch a bunch of eggs, mm-hmm. and then once those eggs are extracted from her ovaries, then they are mixed with the uh, male partner's sperm, yeah. and then you create an embryo, and that embryo is grown to five days. And on day five, mm-hmm. uh, the embryologist grabs a little laser, mm-hmm. and there's a section of the uh, blastocyst. Mm-hmm. Now it's that's when it grows to be 125 cells. It's called a blastocyst. 125 cells total. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So there's something wow. called a trifectoderm around uh, that's, that's on the outer edge of the blastocyst, and that becomes the placenta, mm-hmm. and something called the ICM inner cell mass that mm-hmm. becomes the baby. Okay. So basically, wow. five cells are grabbed via this laser from the trifectoderm. Okay. And those the trifectoderm are, was the outside thing or the inside? Thing? The outside thing. Outside thing. Great. The yeah. placenta. The placenta. Great. Yeah. Great. Great. Um, so yeah, that, that gets into our lab, and this is actually not new. This is this whole idea of like sampling embryos has been around for like, I don't know, more than, more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy that you can take a human, well, not human, I guess an embryo yeah. and you can just like grab some cells and it's like just totally fine. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Everything, everything just take about, a couple, you know, everything about the IVF lab, IVF lab, I just find super mystical. Right. Like I, I've spent a bunch of time in all of them and it's just like, there's all these Petri dishes and inside of them are future humans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, this is the coolest job ever. Like yeah. they're, they're just, um, yeah, like they're inject, there's, there's this procedure called ICSI. So intracytoplasmic intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Okay. So it's kind of like a needle. They put a sperm in there and they like inject it into the egg. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's for people, for, that's for, uh, men who, so yeah, sperm like doesn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't like fertilize their partner, yeah. partner's egg naturally. And they it's just like, like use us. Yeah. Yeah. They just inject it in and, it, it and then it, and then it works. And yeah. those babies are born that way. Yeah. So anyways, yeah. I just think, I just think it's super awesome. Um, but yeah, sorry. So, so back to well, what it is we're doing. So basically amazing stuff happens at the IVF lab. It's like one of, I don't know, to me, I think it's one of the coolest places because, um, I don't know if you spent like, any time in just like hospitals and stuff, but it's usually super depressing, Sad, yeah. super depressing. Yeah. Just, like people... White walls, just like people being rolled around and like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I think the thing that I find depressing about it is it's more just, um, you know, people are just on their way to the grave. It's death versus life. Yeah. It's death versus life. Yeah. So yeah, I think the, the IVF lab, I would say, is pretty similar vibe in the sense that it's still super clinical. There's <laughs> yeah. all these machines. It's like similar vibe to the hospital, but the, I think the emotional tenor, at least for me, is like super different. It's like, here are all these humans that wouldn't exist if like someone didn't like make this happen. Um, so to me, I just think it's, yeah, I don't know. It's like, it, it feels very... Um, I don't know. I actually never get like more excited than when I'm in the IVF lab. <laughs> nice. I'm just like, this is so cool. We have all these humans that are that are like being made here. Like yeah. people's dreams are coming true, right? Yeah. Like people, people come into doing IVF super emotional, right? Because they've like tried so long and they aren't able to have kids. And it's sort of like, yeah. it's like a modern day miracle, right? Yeah. And we're like, hey, look, you get to like, you get go to home. this amazing thing. You get to go home and have a, have a baby. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so basically it sounds crazy that you would like laser off some cells, mm-hmm. but it's actually fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, those, those cells come to our lab. And then basically the challenge is that these five cells have a really, really small amount of DNA. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't been possible ever before to do a whole genome sequence on these because yeah. basically you, uh, what, what happens is that you have um, like sort of uh, an incomplete sequence. Basically certain parts of the genome get copied too much. And let's, let's imagine your genome was like 
cat, dog, apple. Mm-hmm. Maybe the uh, enzyme would only bind to cat and dog, and then mm-hmm. apple would never get represented. So your whole genome is cat and dog, and you don't know that apple is missing. Okay. Or maybe it would just randomly bind to cat and apple, and you wouldn't know that dog is always missing. That makes mm-hmm. sense. So basically what happens when you sequence the genome is you have to make a bunch of copies, and yeah. then you run it into the sequencer, and then when you, you run it... You use a sequ- PCR at the beginning to make all the copies. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So basically, uh, and then the sequencer identifies yes. each uh, type, yeah. like... Which, which base it is by, yeah. sh- by shining a light at it, yep. and then you know, different bases have different lights. Yep. But basically, at the, the beginning stage, if, you're copy- if the way you're copying is biased, so mm-hmm. you're, only, you're only copying cat or dog, you're only mm-hmm. copying cat or ap- apple, then you're sort of effed because yeah. you can't correct for the fact that you never... You never saw that. You never saw the secret. Yeah. So basically, that's been a huge problem in the past, mm-hmm. but basically, that's what, what ORCID has um, solved. So we basically mm-hmm. have a new amplification technology mm-hmm. that allows us to um, uniformly sequence the entire genome. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. So you, that's so instead of, so when, mo- well, hey, it's just cool to hear because I, I, and, and well, obviously your excitement around the IVF lab is cool and infectious <laughs> and excited. It's like, oh, IVF life. It's like, I'm imagining like hitting up Nora on the, on a Friday and be like, yo, you want to hang out? She's like, let's go to the IVF lab. You know, it's like, okay, I was going to go to a bar. They usually, they usually operate super early. Like they open at like, you know, six or seven a.m. and yeah. they're like done for the day by like three because they have, yeah. to, they have to ship out samples. For example, so they have to meet that cut, you know, they have to basically have all the samples ready and do overnight shipping for everything. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's exciting. That would be cool if there was like a 24-7 IVF flight. That would be great. hanging out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can see, watch them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that makes me think of, or yeah, maybe an orchid is um, bigger than you guys can, like a Krispy Kreme, when you're waiting in line for the Krispy Kreme, you get to see your donuts being made. And so maybe orchid biosciences, when you go to your office, there will be a, um, you can look in the glass and see the IVF happening behind the screen. That would be cool. That would um, be cool, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, and then, as you said, also just hearing from me in my mind, like, it is so crazy that you get these little cells, and then they just start doubling. Um, and it's, then there's 125, which... And then there's a few trillion. And then there's a few trillion. <laughs> it, it's totally crazy. And then that 125, and you take away five of them, and five's, five's not that many. The five at 125, it's like, okay. But, I mean, obviously... Yeah, it's like an arm. <laughs> yeah, it's a, seriously, seriously. Yeah, it's like, okay, whatever. They'll be fine. Um, and uh, so that's cool to hear. And then the other piece is like... So you're saying when the the issue is like with my cells, um, I guess it's easier to with, when you take um, from me. I have trillions. You can take as many as you want. You get my. It's easier to do the initial um, PCR amplification mm-hmm. because there's a lot of them or something. Versus like with the only five cells, you don't have as many, and so it's like harder. It's like easier to miss one of those initial things. Or is that what's going on? Yeah, yeah. So basically, in an embryo, you have about six picograms of DNA per okay. cell, so you have like thirty picograms total. Mm-hmm. Versus in a blood or saliva sample, when you isolate out the DNA, you have like hundreds of thousands of yeah. times that amount. So basically, yeah. the, pro- the protocol for blood and saliva uh, sequencing is a commodity. Everyone can do it. Yes. Like it's. I mean, I'm not saying it's hard to screw up, but. You know, people know how to do it. Yeah. Versus for embryos, for only five cells, uh, there's only a handful of people who do um, single cell sequencing. And, yeah. and there's also other um, complications with embryos, like things like mosaicism, where basically uh, some cells have, uh, you know, basically different DNA than other cells. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess basically the, the TLDR is that the reason why it's hard to do sequencing on embryos is that there's a really small amount of DNA and the chemistry or the amplification protocols are designed for uh, when you have a lot more. DNA. Yeah. So basically, cool. that's, that's one of the challenges that uh, we solved that we think is uh, super exciting to be able to offer to parents because it's a way higher resolution photo. Mm-hmm. So currently, the testing that's available in embryos only tells you uh, the number of chromosomes. So mm-hmm. we all have, you know, 23 pairs of chromosomes. Yeah. And if you're uh, missing or you have an extra one, 
uh, it's generally causes quite a few problems. Yeah. Often it's miscarriages. Yeah. Um, so that's what's uh, typically offered for people who are going through IVF. Yeah. But um, that's a very small. It's like uh, a, yeah, 10 by 10 pixel image or whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. It's kind of like if you're, you know, if you're missing an entire chapter in a book, of course, mm-hmm. you'd like to know. But wouldn't mm-hmm. you actually like to know, like, what actually the book says? Like, yeah. Would you actually like to read every single letter? Yeah. So that's sort of the difference between, like, what, um, you know, old school tests can do and what, what work can, can do. So old school tests just tell you are, you, are you missing a chapter? And work can tell you, like, every single letter. And it's also, yeah, we, we kind of like summarize it for you. We don't like make you read the entire book. You sort of say like, <laughs> here's all 3 billion bases. Good luck. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.